0: Nehemiah to O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king, in the month of Nisan in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, That you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, keeper of my king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah and Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Father, we we come into your presence this morning from all all kind of places. And I don't know if it's the rain or just a, a long weekend or, or what it is, Lord, but I just feel like there's a um, something here that's want to keep us from being here in your presence and, and being fully present with you, um, to hear what you have to say to us, to experience what you want to do in us and through us. And so Lord, we just give you ourselves. Um, if we, if we haven't been here yet today, uh, we want to be here now. And so Lord, we, we just lay our hearts and our minds and our lives bare before you. We ask you to, um, meet us here. We ask you to do what we can't do, which is to Um, open us completely to you and to what you have for us and to who you are. And Lord, would you melt our stony hearts? Would you melt our cold hearts? Uh, Lord, as we we go through the week and um, things cause us to fear, things cause us to uh, doubt, things cause us to um, be afraid to hope. Um, to question whether you are who you say you are and whether you're as good as you say you are. Lord, let us bring all those things here to you and have you meet us in that place where we really are and do your good work. Lord, you promise that you never leave us unchanged. You promise that your word never returns void. You promise that it always accomplishes the work for which you sent it. And Lord, would you remind us too that uh, your work is is a, a long Uh, good, deep work. And so, Lord, would you take away the fear uh, that we have of running out of time? Would you take away the fear that we have of of missing out on other things? Lord, would you let us just be right here, right here in your presence, um, hearing from you with this treasure that you've given us that is your word, that is everything we need for life. And um, Lord, let us just see expectantly what you wanna do in us and through us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let's see, can I get, can we get that turned off? Is that something we can do from back there? No? Okay. Somebody. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. Okay, but but I went down there and looked at it like I possibly was going to know what to do. I don't know what to do with that. Um, Okay. I'm just going to stand over here. That's great. Uh, I want to tell you all a story. When I was in college, my freshman year of college, the presidential uh, debate, one of the debates was at our college. And so they sent out this email and said, Hey, there are 50 student tickets to the debate and you can enter this lottery and potentially get to, to go to the debate. And so I wanted, I really wanted to do that. Not so much because I'm a political junkie, but just because that's a really cool experience. And so, I entered the lottery, didn't get a ticket, but then they said, hey, you can volunteer to work the debate, and so let us know if you want to do that, and I thought, okay, maybe that's a way for me to get in there, and so everybody else had the same idea, so my job that um, came to me in working the debate was, if the the debate was a Thursday night, so on Monday between the hours of 1 p.m. and 5 p.m., I was a door guard at Wait Chapel, which was the the place of the debate, and the headquarters were down um, in the basement, and that was where, like, all the, the gears were turning for the people working the debate, but, I mean, just stop for a second and, and help me um, think with me about what that means, that three days before the debate, I was a door guard for Wait Chapel, so um, a couple things, one, Nobody really was trying to get in and do anything uh, in this place. So um, I was just standing there for a few minutes and like students would kind of walk nearby as they were going other places in campus. Like, hey, you can't come in here. Like, cool, man. I wasn't trying to go in there. I'm like, okay, yeah, just so you know, you can't come in here. But then it was like, if somebody really was coming to do something, what was I going to do? Like, if you've watched, like, the Tom Clancy movies or the Bourne movies, like, what, what am I going to do with no weapons standing at the door three days before this debate? So, um, I decided to take a risk. I decided to walk down into the headquarters where all the magic was happening and just see what I could get into. And so I walked down the stairs and I mean, it was just like the control center and everybody's going nuts and they're running all over each other and everybody's talking and it's loud. And I'm just standing there watching people like move back and forth. And all of a sudden this guy appears from the crowd and he just comes up to me and he said, Hey, you're the guy that Rebecca sent. And I was like, okay, this is the, this is it. Am I the guy that Rebecca sent? I I don't know. That's a decision we got to make right now. And I was like, I'm the guy that Rebecca sent and he's like, great, come with me. And so he takes me and I'm like, this is it. This is where it gets really exciting. And we go back into this room where there's a very old gentleman who is putting stickers on the back of tickets. He said, good, this is where you need to be. I'm like, this is even worse because now I'm stuck in this tiny room with this old man and we have nothing to talk about and there's no windows and we're just putting stick it, stickers on the back of these debate tickets that have like the actual seat assignments. So I'm sitting there thinking about how um, I've made a very poor decision and things are not working out. And then at the very end, this man turns and says, hey, give me your campus address because my little um, department here always gets extra tickets to the debate and I want to send you one. I was like, yes, I did it. And so I actually got to go to the debate. I got to shake hands with both candidates and it was really cool. It was a great experience. But I tell you that story because um, you just need to know more about my life. No, I tell you that story because, uh, we're talking about risk today and I want to think about that. So in this, I mean, that's a silly example, but there's this point, there's this moment where you've got to take a risk and you've got to decide, um, what am I going to do here? Am I going to go for it? Am I going to risk it for the biscuit or am I going to sit here and just let life kind of keep passing me by? And so I want to ask like, what is, you know, before we even move into this passage, what, what, what's happening when you take a risk, when you face a risk? Like, and so one of the things that's happening is um, there's fear. There's fear that comes up and it's, it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of possible or maybe even likely suffering. It's fear of um, being out of control because maybe where my orbit right now, I've, I mean, it's, I never really am, but it's the illusion of control. Um, I'm under this illusion that I kind of have everything under control. And if I step out of the normal rhythm through a conversation or a asking a question or trying something new that um that balance is going to be upset somehow and so every time you're thinking about taking a risk you're weighing the options of what what is this worth like what is worth me feeling uncomfortable for is this worth me feeling uncomfortable for and so um and this series. Um, it's called Come Let Us Rebuild. We're, we're going through the book of Nehemiah and we're looking at Nehemiah's life as he is responding, first receiving, but then responding to and living out of this God-given vision. Um, God gives this man a vision uh, for something bigger than himself. He's giving him a, a place to invest himself um, that is for. God's kingdom that is, is for God's glory and for the good of God's people. And so Nehemiah, um, we've, we've spent the first couple of weeks looking at how Nehemiah first is met with this need. He's met with this need out in the world. He's living his life out in the world and he sees these needs and these needs move him It moves him. And he brings his emotions. He brings his response to the Lord. And he says, Lord, this is not good. Like this is not right. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm all these things. What are you going to do with this? And as he meets over a long period of time with the Lord in this intimacy of this relationship with God in prayer, the Lord is taking his frustrations and his anger and his sadness and the situation, and he's, he's shaping it and he's crafting it and he's clarifying it and he's sharpening it. And he is giving Nehemiah a vision. And he's saying, Nehemiah, the reason that this stuff was bothering you is because I am calling you into something bigger than yourself. And this is what I'm using to call you in. And so as he spends time with the Lord and the Lord shapes it, he finally gets to a place where he has clarity on how and where and when he is supposed to move and what he's supposed to do. He doesn't know the whole story. We're we're never going to know the whole story on the front end because the Lord is always calling us to, to live in dependence on him and to move in faith. But he knows what he needs to do next. And so we get to this place where this vision is moving him to take a risk. And he gets to this place where he can't not do it. Um, He, it's not even a possibility. I know that um, this will, this is not like to be afraid of losing my life. There is no life if I don't take this risk. So I'm not actually losing anything because this is, this is everything. This is where I need, this is where life is. This is what I need to be doing. And, um, and so I want us, as we look at this passage of him first, taking these first steps of moving with this vision that he's formed in the intimacy of his relationship with the Lord out into the world to a place where it's scary and he is now vulnerable and this vision is now vulnerable and all of this feels vulnerable and out of control. Um, what does this look like when you have a God-given vision and how does this propel you out into the world um, to live in response to that vision? And so as we ask that question, I want us to just stop and think, what does it look like in your life to take a risk? Um, and, and, and not just any risk, not like the, the story that I told or like jumping off a cliff at the lake or things like that. Those are, those are risks and they're, that's great, fun. But, um, what does it look like to really take a risk like Nehemiah did in response to the call of the Lord on your life? in response to the vision that he's given us. And so in some sense, we all have the same vision. We are all on the same mission. It's, it's to glorify God and make disciples and um, to see the kingdom of God come into our own souls and into the lives of others and the lives of each other. God's called us together into this community to play a, a special role in each other's lives and to see his kingdom come out in the world, um, out into places where he's calling us to push back the darkness, and so what does it look like? What, what, what might it look like for the Lord to, to put a vision on your heart um, and a bunch of little visions? Because, uh, you know, we have this one overarching vision, but we also have these little visions where he calls us to say things or to ask things or to move into things in these little individual relationships and conversations and, and places where we work, in places where we invest ourselves throughout our life. Um, there's gonna be a lot of these little visions under this big overarching vision. And so what does it look like to move out um, in faith with the Lord? And it's, it's this idea, as one author said, um, a ship docked in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are made for. It's this idea that we can, we can live in safety of never taking a risk, of never responding to the, the nudging of the Holy Spirit to move out into the vision that he's called us to, And at some point we kind of cease to become human because we were made for this. And so um, first, these first few verses here, um, a God-given vision leads to risk-taking. It leads to what we're talking about here. And so we hear about Nehemiah being the cupbearer to the king. What is the cupbearer to the king? The cupbearer is actually the like second in command in all the kingdom. It is a position of great privilege and great power. He would be second only to the king and all of the king's princes in power and authority in this kingdom. And so Nehemiah is the one, I mean, it's the cupbearer because he's the one that takes a drink from the cup before the king does to make sure that there's no poison in the cup, but he's also the king's confidant. He is, he's helping the king make decisions that are shaping what's happening out in the kingdom. And so he is in a position of great privilege and great influence. And then it says that, um, he came to the king at a time that, that wine was before him. And, and this was most likely a Persian new year's party. Um, this was a feast. This was a big celebration, and um, Nehemiah comes, and his face is sad. And we might think, okay, what's what's significant about that? Well, this is a really big deal because part of the deal, when you are the cupbearer, you might be very close to the king, but it, you are nowhere near peers with the king. And so, um, any time you show displeasure in the king's presence is potentially interpreted by the king as protest to the way that he is ruling or displeasure with the way that he is ruling. Um, And and you are risking your life. And so Nehemiah comes before the king, and we don't know if he just knew that this was the time and like, okay, this is it. I've got to just be honest and be myself, or if he just couldn't help it. I don't know about y'all, but there are a lot of times in my life where I would like to not have a conversation right now, but either Lee or somebody else in my life knows that everything's not okay. And they're like, hey, hey you just got to come clean. Like, what's going on with you right now? I'm like, okay, here we go. And so this was one of those moments. And so that's why it says that he comes before the king and the, the word that the king uses for, um, uh, let's see, where is it? Your, why is your face sad? That word sad actually means like bad or ugly. <laughs> it's like, why is your face so messed up right now? And, um, and Nehemiah is exceedingly afraid. He's exceedingly afraid because he knows he is risking his position. He is risking his life. He is risking everything. But the reason that he moves forward, even though he is exceedingly afraid is because this is Everything. I don't have a choice. I'm so convicted. I'm so sure of what the Lord has called me to that this is it. And he is with me in this moment. And so here he goes and the odds don't matter. He just knows that he has to do this. And, and I think we all know what that moment feels like. Um, No matter how you respond to those moments, I I think we all have experienced those moments where um, it's just, it's hanging in the balance. And you know that that there's like this something tugging inside of you, like it's time to go. It's time to tell the truth. It's time to just let it rip. And sometimes we make a decision to do that. And sometimes we make a decision not to do that. Um, my first day on the job as an attorney um, at the DA's office in Charlotte, I had already kind of had a conversation with the Lord about um, how this was all going to go in terms of how I was going to bring my faith into the workplace and say, you know what? I'm just going to take a, a few months to just be me and like, let people get to know me before I ever say anything about my faith in you. And he's like, okay, cool. And then on the first day in the lunchroom, there are 40 attorneys. We're all sitting there eating lunch together. Um, somebody's telling a lot of off-color stories and jokes. And I'm just not laughing like everybody else is. I'm just eating my lunch. And uh, the guy next to me, it's like totally silent. And he goes, what's your deal? Are you a Christian or something? I'm like, okay, Laura, that's funny. That's cool. And it's, you know, it's that moment where you're like, uh, yeah, actually I, (laughs) am, and then everybody's like, Oh, Ooh, okay. Um, but it's these moments. I mean, our lives are full of these moments and it's just a matter of uh, like, are we going to respond to these moments or not? And so, um, one question for us is, do you know what that feels like when the, the Holy Spirit is nudging you? Do you know? What it, do you know what that feeling is? And maybe you do, and you don't think you do. Maybe you actually do, and it's it, you think, oh man, I just feel nervous. I feel excited. I feel whatever. And you're like, yeah, that's that's what it feels like when the Holy Spirit is is nudging you to speak or to act or to not speak <laughs> uh, when you normally would have. But it's really important for us if we're going to live in relationship with Jesus, we're going to live in response to. The, the things that he's putting in our lives and putting on our hearts um, for his plans, for his will. I've got to know how to hear from the Holy Spirit. And what, is, what does that feel like? What does that sound like? Um, but right here, I just want to recognize one thing before we go any further. Uh, the Christian life, the life of actually following Jesus can be a lot of things, but it is never boring. Never, ever, 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 ever boring. If you think for a second that following Jesus is boring, um, the problem is not with Jesus. There's some disconnect that I'm not hearing from him. I'm not understanding how to move in line with him because it is never boring. He is always calling us out to push back the darkness in our own hearts, in this community, in the lives of other people and out in the world. And that is, that is never boring. That's always exciting. It can be dangerous. It can be scary. I cannot like what he's calling me to do, but it will never be boring. And so he, he takes this risk, Nehemiah does. And, uh, and the next thing that, that this God-given vision leads him to is a bold specificity. Um, look at starting in verse four. Um, he's before the king and he's told him, he's honest when the king says, what is wrong? What is causing your heart to be this sad? He tells him. And he says, look, this is why I'm sad. And then the king asks him, what are you requesting? What are you asking me for? What do you want, Nehemiah? That is a really important question for us. What do you want? Because whether you know it or not, your heart, your life unfolding is always unfolding in response to, to moving toward desires that you have. And a lot of times we're not in touch with our own hearts to know why we're moving in the direction we're moving or what we're even responding to, but it doesn't change the fact that we are always living in response to the desires of our heart. And so it's really, really important that we know, what do I want? What am I living for? what when I wake up in the morning and I start making decisions, why am I making the decisions that I'm making? Why am I gravitating toward these things and these people and not these things and these people over here? Because what happens is, um, as I'm moving through life, life is painful and I encounter suffering. And then what starts to happen is I start to shut down my heart and I start to be cynical And I start to live by conventional wisdom. And I start to say things like, well, that's just life. That's what it is to live in the real world. Um, Shouldn't expect more than this. This is good enough. I don't, you know, And, and all of a sudden we're just, man, our hearts are just, the power's down. Like the factory is off. Like it's just, we're living out of this like zombie existence where I don't even, I'm just sleepwalking through life. And I've been burned or I've been disappointed enough or I'm afraid enough to where I just, every time the Holy Spirit is nudging me toward life, I'm just shutting it down and I'm shutting it down and I'm shutting it down. And all of a sudden it's just, it's just down. Um, And I become a coward and my heart just kind of shrivels up and dies. So you think about that happening over the course of a life in marriage. I stop bringing my heart to my wife. Over the course of a life in your career, and stop thinking about what what am I actually working toward, and how am I serving the world? I'm just no. I'm getting up every day and just getting a paycheck. I'm just going to do that again tomorrow. And I'm going to come home, and what I'm looking forward to is just vegging out, just numbing out in front of the TV, and, for, and going on a vacation where I can numb out in a different place that has different furniture for me to sit on. That's just it. And so what happens, uh, what the Lord is doing in us is he's calling us to say yes to these desires. Um, He is wanting to take these desires and wake our hearts up and shape us by these desires to take our desires before him and to say, Lord, this is what I really want. And I'm gonna be honest, like I'm really disappointed right now because my life doesn't look like the way I wanted it to look. And you're in charge and you allowed this to happen. Like he wants that. He loves that. This is exactly where you need to be. Because now you're engaging. Now your heart is awake. Now you're alive and and you are moving and grooving with the God of the universe who is at work in your life and in the world. And he is speaking to you through those desires. So don't shut them down. Bring them to him and let him shape them and change them even and grow them, and nurture them. And as he does, that's what's going to allow us to live. It's like um, I'm a cyclist, and when when you're a road biker, you have to clean your chain, because when you're riding on the road, it's got grease on it, and you're always picking up stuff from the road. You're always picking up like bits of metal and bits of dirt and bits of sludge and and all sorts of stuff. And what happens if you never clean your chain is it just gums up the works and then it starts to reshape and shave off your gearing and then the whole thing just doesn't work anymore. And that's kind of like our hearts. And what happens when you clean them is you take all of the junk that's not supposed to be there off and now it's clean and it's smooth and it's working. And that's how our hearts are made. We, when we bring them to the Lord in his presence, he cleans them and clarifies what, what, is, what, what am I living for? What are the desires that you've put in my heart? And then that's only then can I start moving. Can I have what I deeply need, which is a conviction and a clarity in what this calling is? Because now I, I know, okay, this is what I want and this is what I need to make it happen. And it makes you Bold. When you have clarity of a calling like that, when you have clarity of vision, it makes you bold. And so this is Nehemiah here. Nehemiah is standing before the king and he is on fire. He is on fire in the king's presence because he is now, he's living on the edge because he has just been honest with the king and the king, he's rolled the dice and the king said, okay, what do you want? And he was ready because the Lord had shaped that desire. He had clarified that desire. He didn't just say, hey, um, man, I'm just really upset about this thing. Okay, what do you want? I don't know, you know, uh, I don't know. Or like, I just kind of generally want that to be in a better place over there. Okay, well, what do you want to do about it? I don't know, I hadn't gotten that far. No, no, no. He said, what do you want? And Nehemiah said, I'll tell you exactly what I want. I want you to let me go and rebuild. And he said, okay, and not only that, I'm gonna tell you what I need. And, and I mean, listen to these asks that he's making in the king. He is his most trusted advisor. Hey, I'm gonna be gone for months. You're gonna have to train somebody else. You're gonna have to trust somebody else. But I don't care. I'm asking this. This is what I gotta have. I'm, I'm gonna be gone. I, I need you to let me go. I need you to actually reverse your royal decree that you said to stop the building years ago. I need you to reverse that and lose face with people. You're going to have to make a new decree where I'm going to get to rebuild. You're going to have to send letters to the governors of those provinces over there to let me rebuild. And I want you to basically just give me full access to your forest and take as much timber as I need. That's what I'm asking for. I mean, the boldness of this man in the presence of the most powerful human on earth and the boldness, even of what he's asking for in general This is a 1,500-mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem. Think about doing that on a horse. I want you to send me 1,500 miles. Give me permission. Give me the go-ahead. Open the gates to send me 1,500 miles on a horse from luxury to ruins to do the impossible. Because even if I fail, I have to do it. The man is bold because he knows what the desires and the vision that God's put on his heart um, and he's moving toward it. And so uh, a question for us is, what is that for you? And when is the last time that the Lord has put something like that on your heart to where you were willing to fail? You're willing to risk the embarrassment of failure because you're like, "I, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. I have to get in the game. I have to do this. And so finally, um, as we're moving with bold specificity, uh, a God-given vision leads us to suffering. Starting in the second half of verse eight here, um, Nehemiah says, The king granted me what I asked. Why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. Translate that, um, because the favor of God rested on me. And we're very confused, I think a lot of us about the favor of God and what that looks like and what that feels like, because um, we're kind of living in the hashtag blessed, you know, Uh, and so God's favor looks like a bigger house or a nicer car, um, but that's not what God's favor looks like. Um, If you wanna do a little study through scripture and look at God's favor and what it does to people, (laughs) um, you're gonna find very different things and um, and so here it 's so clear that god 's favor rests on Nehemiah, and look at where it leads him, and it leads him to encounter these men and this is like these last two verses kind of like a foreshadowing of what 's to come. these men are going to oppose his efforts in very serious, very damaging ways for a very long time to come and so what what the Lord is showing us here in this story is we've got to have a conviction and a clarity on the vision that he's calling us to because we're going to need it because we are going to face opposition. Anytime we join Nehemiah in doing what he was doing here, working for the welfare of the people of God, um, we are going to face opposition. And the problem is a lot of times um, I, I, face opposition and suffering. And I translate that into something that it doesn't mean. I, I want to take that and say, okay, if I'm doing, if I have God's favor on me and I'm doing what he's called me to do, then things are going to be really easy. And so when I encounter opposition, it's going to make me want to stop and question the fact that God ever called me to this in the first place. But that's not what that means. That's what the evil one wants you to think. That's what the evil one wants to do in us is to make us question and stop and pull back and second guess. Um, but the Lord is saying, no, no, no. My favor is that I'm calling you into this work with me and, and I'm going to be with you the whole time. I'm going to give you everything you need. This is not a sign that I'm not with you. This is, um, me calling you to join me in the good work that I'm doing in the world. And, uh, of course we've got to look at our Jesus who was the most favored one. Um, the Lord said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And, and, and look at his life in this world. He left the palace for the ruins, um, for the welfare of the people of God. And he suffered every step of the way, but it was worth it. It was worth it because he knew what he wanted. He knew what was good. Um, it makes me think of Mark 8, when Jesus says, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What God's saying here, what Jesus is living out for us and telling us is that there is something that is worth more than the suffering that you're gonna encounter and it's your soul. It is your soul. It is your relationship with God. It is your union with the God of the universe that you were created for. And he is doing something in us. He, the kingdom is coming in our souls and in our community and in the world through Jesus first um, and through us as we suffer um, with our Savior. And that suffering is worth it because it is, it is growing something in us. It is growing something in the world that is beautiful. And just like the risks we've been talking about, when we see things the way that he sees things, we can't not do it because there's really no life apart from that. Um, we, are, we are ships not made to stay in the harbor. We're made to sail and encounter whatever we encounter. And so what I wanna leave us with this morning as we, as we turn uh, to the communion table is just to ask this question, where is Jesus calling you to risk um, for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom in your own life, for the sake of the kingdom in this community, for the sake of the kingdom moving in the world? Um, and and here's, here's just a few ideas of what it could be, um, but, but you, have to, you have to ask him. For some of y'all in this room, it may just be turning and trusting in Christ for the first time. It may be giving up control of your life to say, you really are Lord, and I want to follow you. Um, You are where life is, and it's that, (laughs) that's a big risk. Um, But it, it, it is surrendering to him and giving your life to him. For some of us, it's asking forgiveness or confessing sin to somebody that we've wronged. To ask someone to, to just raise your hand and say, I need help. To ask someone to disciple you, to join a small group, to ask someone to teach you how to pray. For maybe maybe some of y'all, it's it's sharing Jesus with somebody um, who he's put a, a burden on your heart and given you an opportunity to do that with. Maybe it's praying in the presence of others. Um, or, Or maybe it's, not letting your work be your God anymore and letting, letting something else shape the rhythm of your life. But whatever that is, um, he is always moving. He's always moving his kingdom in us and out in the world. And so we want to learn how to follow him and let him redefine success for us, that it's not results. We don't have to be afraid of failing in these things because success is obedience. It's hearing his call and saying yes and moving and seeing what he will do. Father, would you, um, would you change us? Lord, would you would you take the fear away that causes us to um, think that we are protecting ourselves by not taking risks and, and open our eyes to help us see that we're actually doing great damage to our souls. Lord, you have made us to follow you, you've made us to, to know you and love you and respond to you. And so Lord, would you enable us to do that? Lord, would you give us the courage and the hope and the faith that we need, the love for you, the love for our neighbor that we need that is ours in you, Jesus. Um, would you just turn that love loose in our hearts and, um, and do your good work and continue to, to work out your salvation, the salvation that you've given us Um, in our souls and in the world. And we ask that in your name. Amen.